come on a journey with a cinephile. Wake up, sucker. We're thieves and we're bad guys. That's exactly what we are. listeners to journey with a cinephile a horror movie podcast as i'm doing a little bit something special here is this is going to be bonus episode number seven and i'm going to be stepping outside of the horror genre a little bit here as me and one of my good buddies from high school of robert who is the host over on bobby talks three dots as we decided we were going to take on an alfred hitchcock film and we'll get a little bit more into it during the actual, you know, when he and I are talking together. But we decided to do Rear Window from 1957. So what I thought I would do is just do a brief little intro here before we get over to that. So what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm not going to waste any of your time here. I'm going to get you over to the trailer. And then you, I will be joined by Robert as we get into this movie. And I also kind of want to throw up this here is that there will be spoilers in this film. And, I mean, it is from 1954, so there has been quite a bit of time between, you know, its release and now. But still wanted to give you that heads up if you haven't seen this movie. If you don't mind having it spoiled, I would say go ahead and listen to it. But if you don't really care or anything like that, go ahead and delve into this. And I will say one last time is thank you for coming on this journey with me. And let me get you over to that trailer. This is the scene of the crime. A crime of passion filmed in a way you have never seen before. And as no one else would dare attempt, but the screen's master of suspense, the producer-director who shocked the world with Psycho. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. For instance, down there on the second floor, the woman pacing about. He calls her Miss Lonely Hearts, so lonely that even death seems like a friend. These are the newlyweds on a honeymoon no one will ever forget. 
He calls her Miss Hearing Aid, an artist of a very odd and strange art. The songwriter who plays the same melody over and over again. A genius or insane? This is the traveling salesman and his invalid wife. Out of their arguments and nagging comes a weird kind of love. Miss Torso, the body beautiful. That is, viewed from a safe distance. Those are just a few of my neighbors. First, I watched them just to kill time, but then I couldn't take my eyes off them, just as you won't be able to. And you won't be able to take your eyes off the glowing beauty of Grace Kelly, who shares the heart and curiosity of James Stewart in this story of a romance shadowed by the terror of a horrifying secret. back everybody and i'm actually joined by a very special guest here somebody that i've known for i mean pretty much most of my life that i can actually as far back as i can remember here as i'm being joined by my good friend here uh robert gifford what up what up <laughs> now one of the reasons why i wanted to get him on here is that he and i have always been you know big movie fans like right after college we really were kind of that was one of the things that we would do is you know, walk the halls of uh, family video and, I mean, spend an hour trying to find something to watch and then, you know, watch a movie or two when we'd get back to, you know, his place and everything. And so, like, I have been trying to get more guests on the podcast as of late just to kind of expand out there and get some other voices on here. So I figured I would ask him. And we actually picked out a pretty interesting movie is I did let him know that I was, Jamie and I, she got me for my, I think, birthday last year, the IMDb like top 100 poster and it was kind of our thing is that we wanted to start working through it because there's a lot of classics that she's never seen and so when I told him I was doing this he gave me a few titles so I thought why not have an interesting kind of filmmaker here and look at a Hitchcock film of Rear Window so um what kind of made you want to kind of delve into this one you know it's funny I uh I've kind of been doing a little bit of a different approach to films and movies lately. And I kind of a long answer to your question, but okay. I really tired of getting on Netflix and getting on Hulu and, you know, HBO Max or whatever. I get really tired of saying, I want to watch a movie. I get on to these, these streaming applications. And the next thing you know, I spend 30, 40 minutes just zoom or uh, scrolling and I don't end up watching anything. <laughs> and I miss the days of just turning on and having HBO on my TV and, yeah. Being watched two minutes of something and then I'm hooked and then I can't wait for like it to come on again so I can catch the beginning part of it right right so that was like a way of st film study for me well I just decided to change my approach my approach now is is I'm taking directors and I'm going back to the beginning of their their um their um catalog and I'm watching it in chronological order so Okay. Brand new. I just started this with Steven Spielberg. I went through all two of his films. 
I raked them. I did the whole thing. I can probably say I've watched every Steven Spielberg movie there is. <laughs> um, Hitchcock, I think, is going to be the next one. Okay. Um, and growing up, I didn't watch a lot of a lot of his movies, but he was always kind of looked at as like the Babe Ruth of directing, right? Right. And now that he's going to be the next one, Rear Window is like the one or two of his films that I did see that I was lucky enough to happen to catch just by pure circumstance growing up. Um, and I remember watching it and just being obsessed how so much is done in very few environments. Um, and I love when stories can be told effectively that way. So, No, I mean, that's actually, it's, you're definitely dead on there. And I mean, they call him the master of, you know, suspense for, you know, for a good reason. And I mean, I, the guy is a legend. I mean, just for the fact that like he somewhat created the slasher genre with the proto slasher of psycho. Yep. He, I mean, pretty much created the animal attack type film with birds. So like, I mean, this guy has just done so many things that is like, you see why people borrow, I mean, Brian De Palma, I mean, so many people give him flack because they say how much he steals from Hitchcock, but it's like, I think his response was something along the lines of, if somebody's a master of it, why wouldn't you try to emulate who you respect? And I mean, hearing that, I'm like, you're not wrong. Like it's it's dead on what you should be, you know, trying to do. Well, I mean, we all, we, we do that in everything we, we do. I mean, if we sure. think is, you know, done right, we steal from it and then we try to shape it, make our own. Like I got a podcast, Bobby Talks dot dot dot, you know, and the whole re shaped after Joe Rogan in the sense of like, I like the way that it doesn't matter who you are in life. Mm -hmm. You'll go to Joe Rogan's show because he's allowed you a platform to do it. Right. I think that's that news outlets are really missing right now because they're so bipolar, you know, they're bipolar. What's the word? Uh, bipartisan. Um, they, they're so polarizing and, and, and nobody wants to go on the show if they have an opposite view. I like the fact that Joe Rogan does that. So I steal from it. You know, if you're not stealing from Alfred Hitchcock, you're, you're not a filmmaker because right. he's he set the standard, man. Oh, no, I think you're dead on. And it's actually interesting is my mom had a bunch of like Hitchcock's early work on these like combo pack DVDs. So like I watched them a, like a few years ago because I mean, right. I didn't realize until starting that that he started out in silent films and some of the stuff that he like end up moving from there and everything. Because I mean, you know, he started so early into cinema that I was like, wow, like they're not great. But I mean, it's also you can see kind of the beginnings of where he's going to become by the time that you know, they start doing stuff in color or they start doing stuff in sound or any of those type of things. When, when did he start? You said he started in silence. When, or, or yeah, when did he, uh -huh. when was his first film made, you know? Yep, let me look real quick because I actually had his, the IMDb page for Rear Window, so it's easy enough to pull up his uh, filmography. And it looks like that his first movie he ever did was in 1922 and it was called Number 13 number 13 it would be called that because <laughs> the first one i ever watched is from 1927 that was called easy virtue and that same year he did one called the ring which is kind of interesting because i think it's a boxing movie where okay. it's, it's not necessarily focusing on the boxer but there's a mystery that kind of unfolds because of something that kind of happens with this boxer so would you say that the his early stuff isn't very good because his mind works at a more developed um they you know and then finally the technology caught up to his mind so he was able to tell the stories that he wanted to or was it just because he was so new at it 
and he just it wasn't very good. Like, what would you? I think a lot of it is that the cinema industry wasn't prepared for somebody who was a visionary like him. I mean, a lot of that stuff they're obviously taking from like short stories or like novels or anything. So they're very limited in what they could do. They didn't have a lot of people writing like original content for the screen. So I think for Hitchcock, it's a lot of like, he is ahead of the time, but he has to work with what, wasn't really studios back then, but like if people are giving you money, you kind of have to work with what you have to give. And, And like you said, the technology really wasn't there yet. He was limited in resources and the technology. Right. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. So then let's actually get into the movie here. And like I said, we're going to be doing a rear window here. This is from 1954. This is, of course, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. And he actually had the screenplay written by John Michael Hayes. But this is based on a short story from Cornell uh, Woolrich. And then this starts the amazing James Stewart. Little oh, Jimmy. Yeah. We oh, have yeah. Grace Kelly, and then technically they give third billing to Wendell Corey, but I personally feel like Thelma Ritter of Stella, who is the maid, is the third character here. And oh, by the way, in it from the very get to the end. And she's one of my favorite characters. She has such great interactions with him that I love it. So, okay, you know, I'm going to stop you for a second, though, no, if you're I can. Grace Kelly is it's so funny how like you can have a crush on somebody 70 years i mean we're talking 70 years almost yeah and i'm looking at this woman like she can be someone that i can obtain right now right it's so not true but like she just is this um the uh the uh word i'm looking for um well she just has such a beauty such a stage presence as well especially of that time yeah she, she, that time she kind of, uh, she, except, I don't know what the word I was looking for is, but she basically stands out as, as that, that time period, as that type of actress, that type of woman, that type of very, you know, st- or, uh, typecasted woman as well. Yeah. But, you know, as the, the movie goes on, she starts showing that she can get a little gritty, which right. is where your heart, that's where you fall in love with her, as does L.B. Jeffries. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, it's like Grace Kelly, there's, songs written about this woman for a reason because I always thought about this growing up when I would watch like a Hepburn movie versus Grace Kelly. Yep. I always tell, you know, yep. I always, I always had this weird analogy, Dave, and I don't know if it, if it makes any sense, but like Grace Kelly to me is like, like a dog where uh, uh, Hepburn is more of like a cat. Like Hepburn makes you earn her love, right? Yeah, that's fair. Kelly is like loyal from the get and wants you like there's no reason not to love her and loyal and like just but full of surprises. Like I just always am drawn to Grace Kelly. She's one of my friends from that time period. Well, I mean, it's kind of fitting though that she ends up, you know, marrying the Prince of Morocco or whatever and getting out of filmmaking because I mean, she was that gorgeous. <laughs> yeah, no, good call. Good call. There's actually an interesting story where Hitchcock got mad at her because he wanted to have her, I believe in the birds. And she ran away with the prince or whatever and got married to him. And he was just so irate about it. And I mean, Tippi Hedren is great for that role there and everything, but it's just kind of funny how like this director by this point is already starting to get a little bit too big for his britches and thinking that like he could tell this woman who is out of his league. And I mean, 
he also had a really weird thing where he was faithfully married to his wife forever, but he always liked to have these beautiful women in his film. And like when they're in his film, it almost felt like he was dating them, even though nothing like that's actually happening. Right. It reminds me of, uh, I forget what season of Entourage it is, but it's, <laughs> uh, it's their, um, the director buddy of theirs falls Billy in Walsh. love with Ian, and yep. he just can't continue because he's so jealous of everybody around him. <laughs> good call. Yeah. That's a good call. Um, yeah, that's all I really needed to kind of, you know, introduce the movie. So kind of just jumping into that, I think we should probably start talking about the main character here. Uh, as you said his name already, but just to kind of remind everybody is that it is uh, LB Jeff Jeffries. And he is a photographer that kind of goes to more dangerous places. Like he'll go to like war fronts and everything like that. But currently, because he was in the middle, of, I guess, a racetrack, that he has a broken leg because of a car accident. <laughs> yeah, like a full body cast, except yeah. for one, it's from the hip down. Yep. Yeah. So he's stranded in his apartment and really doesn't have a whole lot that he can do outside of he has his maid come over and she has to like, you know, give him a massage and everything and make sure that he's staying limber. But outside well, of that, all he can do is look out of his window. She's the health or the, uh, the insurance company at that time. Right. Nurse. Right. So apparently they would send these uh, nurses that work directly for the insurance company be the way they did it back. Instead of hiring out a third party, they had their own nurses. So she's more she does do like maid duties for whatever reason. You That's know, right. just Jane Stewart could make anybody <laughs> make a sandwich. But <laughs> but yeah, I mean. She's the she's the Stella. It, right from the get, you see uh, you see LB Jeffrey and Stella in their conversation, and she's kind of the one that's foreshadowing what's going to be taking place, right. saying that hey, you're you know being a peeping tom on your environment here, this voyeurist thing that you're doing is going to cause trouble. So it's true, and I mean even going along with him being you know able to convince her to do these things, I think they have such a great camaraderie that I almost feel like that's partially why she's making him lunch because she's like, oh, this guy is like laid up. He can't do anything. But I feel like she enjoys coming over and kind of badgering him. So I feel like yeah. her way of like repaying a little bit is like, okay, I'll go do this for you. Yeah. And, and she, she, I guess she was married. She's uh, so that's not necessarily uh, um, drooling over James Stewart right. or LB Priest, but she does like, there's something there where she does like the camaraderie. You're right. For sure. Um, and then also he has visiting him, as we've already kind of talked about, you know, the beautiful Grace Kelly, is he's actually dating this, I think she's technically a socialite, that yes. is Lisa Carol Fremont. And yep. he has interesting talks with Stella because he doesn't feel he's good enough for her. So he's trying to find ways for, I almost feel like for her to leave him because I don't feel like he can do it. So his way is just to be mean to her. Yeah, that's the that's kind of the way I picked it up too. Um, although there's a little bit where, you know, he would say, "Yeah, you're almost too perfect," right? He would complain right. about being too perfect, and to a point where he was mean. Like, yep. you know, he would make things. She's clearly like throwing herself at you, dude, and saying how she's the unmarrying kind. Right. Uh, and, uh, but yeah, I mean, I think he wants some grit. Like, as mm. she shows that she can get you know dirt on her finger fingernails throughout the movie. You see him even in the worst situations that are taking place in the movie. Every time he sees her in like these scenarios, he gets that smile on his face that only Jimmy can do. And <laughs> uh, 
yeah, I mean, it's you fall in love with her as he's falling in love with her right. and that everything he said um, to sell at the beginning of this movie here is uh, is just, yeah, false. But Right. And it's what's also interesting is that she gets very upset with him because she wants him to kind of rein it back in. She's telling him how she can help him get jobs as a photographer here in like New York City and everything where he doesn't have to go all these dangerous things. He enjoys the travel and like the danger and everything. So I do think it's interesting that in the beginning there, you do have that divide where, I mean, they're fighting in a very adult manner where they're kind of both voicing their opinions. But I mean, you can see at the beginning that they are definitely kind of worlds apart with what they want at that moment. Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. I um, I don't know if you picked up on this or not, but like I noticed, especially in the very first two interactions between Stella and LB, or, um, yeah, and uh, I forget her name, Grace Kelly's character name again. What is it? Uh, I think it's Lisa. Lisa? Uh, yeah, Lisa Carol Fremont. Fremont, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when the first two interactions that both of them have, mm-hmm. uh, he's trying to get a word in, and they just talk a thousand miles per hour. They cut him off, yeah. and it's like physically <laughs> handicapped, so they know that. Not that he was going to get up and physically do anything, but like he's stuck here listening to these women. Uh- <laughs> a thousand miles per hour and every time he goes to say something he gets cut off by them talking over him and now he's like wait a minute and they'll just keep going i thought that was really interesting the way they did that with both women it's like these women controlling his life it's true and i mean i also think part of that comes back to that stella wants him to settle down with her because she's like why wouldn't you she's perfect right. like, there's nothing wrong with her and she likes lisa as much as lisa i think you know, respects her and everything. And I do agree with you. It's like they're, they have developed a camaraderie where they both care about this guy, but he's the one who's like, I'm going to be stuck in the mud here. and I'm going to be stuck in my ways. Well, you, you know, I mean, first of all, he's a bachelor and I don't yeah. know what, what kind of, I don't know what age they were trying to portray him to be. Yeah, he's, he's hard to always kind of lock down. Yeah. yeah. He's got, you know, full head of gray hair and here's Grace Kelly, who's clearly like in her mid twenties. Right. right? You're not going to get her much older than that. Maybe early 30s, I suppose, if you're stretching it. Um, he's 40s, 50s. I mean, you could be, you could argue he's in his 60s in this movie. Um, <laughs> and you know, but it's that it's that idea of when a man has work that he cares about and is passionate about, mm-hmm. is willing to put it to the side and live a more domesticated life. And that's what, that's what um, Lisa Freeman is asking him to do. Right. And I, there's him that didn't want to detach from that either until he sees maybe a vision of where she could be a part of it he can have his cake and eat it too right so yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. okay and and then, though, right i think you need to set up the environment a little bit tell the uh tell the yep. listeners what does it look like what are we looking at i was actually going to say that was where i was going to go next now that we've kind of established his apartment it's actually kind of interesting because he's stuck in this wheelchair and I was watching this with Jamie and she at first was like, I think thought that he had been doing this the whole time. And I was like, no, I think he's gotten stir crazy. And Mm -hmm. so what he's been doing is he has this huge, like, uh, I guess portrait window or whatever that's overlooking this courtyard where there is like two or three, I think there's three buildings that he's kind of looking at. And what he's kind of done to kind of keep himself entertained is that he has started to watch these other people while their windows are open. And a lot of that is strategic, I think, for the story plot is that it's the middle of summer. 
it's very hot out there in the middle of a heat wave. So everybody has their windows open. So what he's been doing is kind of watching these people, giving them nicknames and then giving up his own backstory as to what they're doing outside, which I think is also part of the theme of this movie as well of voyeurism, which is interesting that we're watching a movie of a guy watching everybody outside of him. Yes, I'm glad you, yes, yes. We're like three parties removed from it, but yeah, yeah. And actually, I think from there, uh, we should probably start delving into the characters as well. What's that? It's funny when you watch these. Have you seen it before Before you and Jamie watched it? Yeah, I think this is probably like my third time or something like that. Because I think my mom showed me this was the first time that I saw it. So let's see how far back. I don't know if you, you when you show movies like I do, but like you're watching the person watch the movie to see how they react to the movie. Yeah. Oh, that was the whole time. <laughs> Voyeurizing on her. <laughs> who's in the movie? That's who's where is the movie? Like the play within itself. It's just for it's funny how far back that is. So. That's a good point. Yeah, no, like anytime I'm watching a movie that I've seen that I know is a classic, I'm always so scared where I'm like, oh my God, I hope she doesn't hate this movie. I hope I'm not boring her right now. And I'm watching her. You get frustrated when there's like some distraction, the cell phone, or she's talking during a part that she. <laughs> <laughs> you answered as quickly as possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so yeah, they it's just- like. New York style back yeah. lot, all you where you can kind of see all the neighbors are sitting on top of each other. It's yep. there, I think, four or five stories high. Something um, like that, yeah. Yeah, it's uh, and then everybody can kind of see, they all kind of share these big type of windows, right? And it's also interesting that this courtyard being New York City, there's not a lot of green space. So I do think it's interesting that this courtyard has places where like the one lady is growing like plants and everything, and then there's all these like there's a little bit of grass out there that people are kind of congregating in a little bit and it's also something that i've not really experienced much where these neighbors do feel like a neighborhood in this in these high-rise apartments where they all kind of know at least enough like you see one guy's irritated with the one lady who can't seem to hear him and like but there's still everybody knows their neighbors right yeah it's kind of like if you were at a retreat yeah. And you had like the poolside balcony and you go out on the balcony and all the hotel surrounds the pool and you guys all kind of share that pool area. Right. That's kind yeah. of what this, this movie is. Um, and from the first shot, and maybe I'm getting ahead of you a little bit, but like yeah. from the first shot, it's just the camera stuck on the window panels Yep. And then all of a sudden it's pushed forward as the drapes are opening yep. and out into the corner we go. Um, and it's, uh, I think it needs to be noted that this entire movie, um, unless I'm mistaken, is either shots inside of the apartment or voyeuring from the apartment windows. Like, I don't believe... Maybe, maybe towards the end, there might have been a I was going to say, I think the only time if there is, is right there at the end where they might have come out of the apartment to, like, film something in the courtyard. But you're mm-hmm. right. Outside of that, everything is from either you're in that apartment or your point of view from looking out of that apartment. And I only know what two, maybe two or three other movies that, like, I've actually enjoyed. Because I'm always curious, how are they going to pull this off? Now, this yeah. movie had a hell of a lot more freedoms than the couple I'm going to name here now. But, like, Devil where all of that movie was taking place in an elevator in the way they, that was interesting. Majority of that movie. I, I shouldn't say all of it because there's a setup in the beginning. Right. Um, but then Barry, 
with Ryan Reynolds, where yep. the whole thing takes place inside of a casket that's buried underground. Um, that's, you know, that's a it's movie. a 90-minute movie out of something like that. That's great acting, great storytelling, great script. Um, and I think I, I'm a little, uh, I was a little upset to learn that Hitchcock didn't write this because I, I wanted to give him more clout than he was earned. Right. But this, <laughs> this is a great screenplay. I mean, yeah. the back and forth scenes is legitimately funny. But, like, smart, I mean, it sets a whole tone for the movie. For sure. Yeah, and, I mean, I know another movie that is a one-setting location that's a, another Hitchcock movie, actually, is um, Rope, which also has Jimmy Stewart in it. That okay. one takes place in an apartment where they're doing a party, and you have people coming and going, and then everything like that, where they uh, – all keep coming back there and coming and going as they try to piece this together where Jimmy Stewart is, I don't know if he's a lawyer or he's a law professor, but that's kind of where he's kind of the main person to kind of figure everything out of what happened in this apartment. Okay. Look at that. So uh, those are the only two collaborations between those two guys or – uh, well, I know they had uh, Vertigo is another one that these two have also worked together yeah. on. Yeah. I know Hitchcock really liked him. He also really liked um, Cary Grant is where you'll get a lot of his his roles will come from that guy as well. I almost feel like Bates Motel, if Stewart was younger, would have got that role too. Oh, potentially, yeah, because yeah, uh, that's a good point. Norman Bates there. Yep. Uh, yeah, yeah. Anthony Perkins, I know, was very young when he was actually yeah. taking on that role. You would need a young, I mean, I guess you could go older. That'd be an interesting twist. But, um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. All right. So I think since we've kind of already established um, kind of where everything is, we can kind of start talking about some of the people that Jimmy Stewart is watching their lives and kind of piecing together for them. So I'll just go down the IMDb list. And the first one that they have on here is... Miss Lonely Hearts, who is a woman who wants to find love, but kind of has some weird interactions as this movie goes on, as she goes out with a couple different people. And we also see her as she sets up a candlelit dinner, but nobody shows up to join her. Yeah, very sad. Um, perfect name for it, right? Yeah. Uh, just uh, you, you're thinking at first when you're first watching this, you're like, oh, somebody's going to come to the door or she's and then. Some, you know, she thinks somebody's coming to the door. She's pretending like, minding like someone is. And you realize that this is, uh, I, I, I'm, I'm assuming my head goes here. My head goes to maybe a widow. Yeah, um, I can see that. Um, where she has had a hard time kind of readapting back to the, uh, to the dating scene and just feels hopeless with it. Um, because she seems I would, older, like a little, not too old, but she seems a little bit older. Which... Yes, I agree, which then throws me for a loop a little bit mm -hmm. towards the end. Um, oh, maybe yeah. it's casted because I don't get that. And we'll, we'll get there. But yes, uh, that's how I felt about her, whether or not that's true or not. I, I'm actually going to assume that it's probably she's not supposed to be a little older. That she probably was never married. She's just the lonely hearts forever and all. Yeah. But kind of the 40 year old virgin in this case, in my eyes. <laughs> right. <laughs> but yeah. Um, and then another one we have is the songwriter who has a penthouse apartment that is not directly in front of him. It's kind of off to the side. And he is trying to 
compose a new song, but he can't seem to get it right. And he also right. seems to have a pretty good social life because we see quite a few times that he'll have people over and they'll do music and just kind of have a like a grand old time at his place. Yeah, this guy is the one that's constantly like trying to find inspiration. They show a scene where he's, you know, yeah, I think he's in his underwear and he's cleaning up a hangover mess from the night before. Yeah. And he, he takes a couple notes, you know, he hits the piano for a couple notes and he's like, ah, he just goes back to cleaning. Right. Yeah. Yep. And then uh, we also have Miss Torso, who is a, oh, yeah. I'm assuming a ballerina, but she's some sort of dancer. And she's another one that has a lot of people that come over and it seems like she has a lot of gentlemen callers that come over but she also has a very interesting ending to everything in this movie this torso obviously for all the obvious reasons is my favorite yeah. <laughs> because, uh, because of you know obviously she is the eye candy of the film she's the one that makes uh well lb jeffries kind of bashful because yep. there's so many times where he's looking over there and she's just you know, willy-nilly out there in her underwear dancing and doing her aerobics and yep. doesn't care that anybody's watching her, almost almost is asking for it. Um, but uh, but uh, there is a couple scenes early on where um, Grace Kelly's character, Lisa Prima, is yep. talking about how she's doing the work of, uh, uh, of, you know, the toughest job that a woman could have dealing with uh, with wolves or something, she says. Yep. And, yeah, so Miss Torso, you're right. There's something that comes at the end that just throws the whole thing for a loop. She could be a villain, I guess, if you want to feel <laughs> But uh, I think at that time, the quirkiness of it plays in, and you're like almost, it's almost okay. She almost gets a pat on the back for the things that take place because of the ending at the end. But yeah, that's yeah. true. And I mean, yeah. it's actually kind of an interesting thing that I picked up on this viewing with her is that you're right. Is that like Lisa notices her and you know kind of makes comments on how tough it is. And there's a direct correlation that when he's not around, it seems like she has to deal with men who are hitting on her. And yeah. the funny thing is, I almost feel like if they break up, she's Miss Torso, where he's yeah. Miss Lonely Hearts, where yeah. for him, yeah. he yeah. can go out and do his work, but him being stranded, he's going to be lonely and missing her when she's not there. And she, I think, knows that and calls him out on it. Yeah, Dave, great connection, man. It almost makes you wonder if every dude, we're going to get ready to introduce the newlywed couple, right? Yep. I wonder if almost every single one of these characters that he's peeping in on is really him peeping in on his own, like, characters inside of his own head. Yeah, Dave. It could be because he keeps looking over at the newlywed couple. I mean, they're also kind of the comic relief a little bit without going too far with it because like he's so tired and every time yeah. he goes to the window she keeps calling him back but <laughs> i do think that he's looking at it is that like if i break it off we're them or if yep. we get married we're the newlywed couple and i have to give up everything yeah you know dave is there a theory on this does this exist this has to exist right like on some reddit forum somewhere there's somebody that that says that because, you know, have you heard this Finding Nemo theory that's gone around? I think I've looked into it a little bit, but that was a wormhole that I wasn't ready to go down at that point. <laughs> I'm not going to sidetrack us there. My point <laughs> is, all these theories, all these movies all the time, like, what is Star Wars really saying, right? Yeah. Is, this the, is this the rear window? Are you on to something, Dave? This is great. 
I mean, I think that's kind of what I feel like is could be a way to read some of these characters and like what they're seeing there. Yeah, and this is why I was a B and C student. You were a name. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> uh, and some other characters that we have is we have the woman and man on the fire escape, and they're actually the ones that have the dog that Jamie absolutely loved when they first let the dog down in the basket and pulley system so the dog can go to the bathroom and then bring him back up. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, you're right. I don't have too much to say to them except what an awesome way to wake up every morning. They would always have their bed out on the uh, the old balcony there. Yep. Had the alarm clock there. They get rained on one time, so they got a lot. Scramble. <laughs> um, yeah, that, there's not too much to them except they, they do play a, you know, a part at the end there. Uh, or maybe not, not really the end, the middle. Um, I wanted to go back real quick to Miss uh, Torso. Mm -hmm. I thought there was something, I thought it was, it was a nice take to see that Lisa Fremont was so relatable to her and wasn't jealous of her. Right. I love the fact that they made Lisa Fremont so strong and secure. Mm -hmm. That would make her not perfect if she was jealous of him creeping on Miss Torso. There's only yeah. one inclination where she's like, no, 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 not if I have anything to do with it. And she like right. closes the a little bit. But like, there's no in inclination that she's jealous of her at all. And I thought that was kind of a nice take that they didn't go that route. Like they let him explore without having to shut that down. Yeah, I think actually Hitchcock does a pretty good job about making strong female characters. Not in everything, but I mean like just kind of the ones that just jump into my head is this one. I think, like you said, Lisa, I think is strong. She's very confident in herself, so she's not really worried there. I do know in like the birds, the woman there is very independent of everything around her and everything like that. And I mean... Psycho is interesting because of, you know, Janet Lee trying to flee from everything, but then her sister is very strong-willed and won't be told no. So, I mean, like, I do think that he, not always, but does seem to incorporate strong female characters into stuff when he can. Yeah, and that's good. That's good because that's way ahead of its time, too. Yeah. So. All right, and then one character I feel like we'll briefly talk about since she really doesn't have a whole lot in it is uh, Miss Hearing Aid. And she's the one I think uh, converses with the person doing the sculpture and is constantly yelling because she can't hear anything, but she kind of disappears, I think throughout this movie. Yeah. I don't think there's a strong reason for her to be there other than just to fill the courtyard, yeah. um, different character, you know, another character. Um, I'm trying to think if maybe you missed anybody of, and I don't really think you did. Um, yeah, that's, uh, I don't, there's not, she's insignificant really. Right. So that would just leave me with the other more important characters here who are the Thorwalds of the husband being Lars. I don't think the wife has a name. Oh, Emma is the wife and he is, is played it, by Raymond Burr. Is it Anna? Uh, Emma. It's Emma? Yeah. Really? Or maybe it might be wrong on here because it's, it's one right. of the two. I think it's Anna in the movie. I think you might maybe, be right. Yeah. That's interesting. I, IMDb. I wonder if I'm wrong or if they're wrong. Anyways. Yeah, so the Thorwalls. Yes. They are um, kind of interesting because the moment we get to really see them is we, I think she's invalid or is at least sickly. 
and he has to go out as a traveling salesman. But we see when he's home, they don't get along very well. And from the get-go, they are having some major blowouts, which is a lot of what LB's kind of entertainment is, is when they kind of have their throws. <laughs> yeah, a lot of uh, the conversation early on between Stella and him have to come off of Thorwalds and the way they interact. And not just necessarily them specifically, but just the way a man and a wife, you know, um, when a woman gets married, she's happy, and then that's the downfall of the man, according to him. And James yeah. <laughs> always has a great one-liner or so to go with it, or just his reactions to things are so great. Yeah. Uh, and he had to get good at that because most of this, well, all of this movie, he's sitting in a wheelchair. So, yeah. Um, yeah, the Thorwalds are an interesting piece. Now, I, for your audience, they are in the courtyard. They would be in the middle of the middle. Yes. So, like, obviously, they're going to become our, our most essential uh, um, characters outside of that apartment. Yeah, it's very strategic that, I mean, framing-wise, you'd want to make them be front and center so that way you can see directly into everything. And, I mean, I also think it's also strategic that his apartment is slightly elevated so he can kind of see down into it and everything yeah. along those lines. Yeah, good call. Good call. Now, question before we get too deep here. Yep. Um, why is that his garden? I don't know. I don't know if, like, New York seems like a weird city back then. I don't know if it, like, came with a certain, like, apartment or is it, like, hey, first come, first serve. Like, if there's nothing going on here and they're not, like, planting anything, he just decided to kind of... Because isn't Miss Lonely Hearts right below him? Yes. Yep, yep. Because she's, oh. I think, on the ground level. Yeah, it should be her garden. I don't know. <laughs> that makes more sense. I mean, she could get out there the fastest. Yeah, and then you've got the, uh, the couple upstairs that are lowering their dog so it can, you know, shit and piss all over the, you know... Yeah. His garden area, like it don't make any sense. So anyway, it's true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know why it's his. Yeah, I don't either. And there's no explanation of it. It's just we take it as is. To me, that's a nitpick of uh, you know, yeah. you go on a meta score, you go from 199.9. Right. <laughs> taking off a full. I'm gonna take off one tenth of a point because whose garden <laughs> is this anyway? <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But anyways, so. So what ends up happening here to kind of get the ball rolling on everything is that as Jeffries is kind of looking out the window at everybody and kind of watching them go about their lives, he ends up realizing that there's a fight, I believe, is what happens in their apartment, and then he doesn't see her anymore. And so he starts to get the thought that he might have done something to his wife. Yeah, and it's very subtle. Right. Yeah. Like when we finally venture into this, you know, this voyeurism mm -hmm. where he's peeping in on his neighbors for entertainment as the night grows long. Um, he I, when we get to about the quarter, you know, the 25 percent of the movie, when he starts to pass about half hour in, there's he's looking at everybody and he's doing it with a very kind of optimistic almost like he's just very joyful in his character. He smiles a lot. Even at, even when his characters are doing negative things or like in an argument, he still finds entertainment in it. Um, but then there's like this shriek scream mm -hmm. that, ah! and the action is very subtle. It's like, you know, he doesn't think too much of it. Mm -hmm. And we go away from it. We go yeah. away from it. 
and you are clearly i mean it, it's not a, we went away from we went from night to day as right after that took place right so like like the movie wants you to forget about it right away right so yeah and then it's interesting because i believe the next night is when it rains because he finds it weird that Lars keeps leaving his apartment during yep. the storm multiple times in the night, like late at night, with his traveling suitcase. And right. he's like, you can only yep. be up to something no good if you're leaving at that time this many times in a storm. Yeah, and he would be gone uh, at like 1.55 a.m. and yep. would come back within 40 minutes and would leave again, come back and leave again. Um, and at that point, all we've seen since the scream, with at least as far as what's the name of their characters, the Thorwalds. Yeah. Um, you know, all we've seen is just Lars and going now this late at night during the rain. Yep. Because uh, I think the blinds now, are closed from that point until I think later. that's the next day is when he finally opens everything back up. Later, yeah, and uh, that's when you know. So now, so now LB's like. Eh, suspicious it's yeah. a little weird, right i don't think there's too much to dive into there other than that's kind of what makes him start thinking it's suspicious and now he's kind of like looking more at that apartment than he is at any of the other Anything ones else. right yeah and then this is i think also around the time where he gets a little bit more creepy with what he's doing as he has one of his cameras given to him with an extremely large lens so he yeah. can zoom in even more and this is where you're kind of like okay, like he's starting to kind of get obsessed with everything that's going on here. And not just him though, because there's a transformation for all of the characters within yep. his apartment, right? Yep. We're gonna be introduced to uh, uh, Jack Doyle, or maybe it's not Jack Doyle, but it's something Doyle, Lieutenant Doyle, yep. Detective Doyle. We're gonna be introduced to him here fairly soon. He, he's the one that's gonna be asked and to look into some of these suspicions. Um, but like Stella, She's still on her 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 cat or soapbox as she's telling <laughs> to do it, but yeah, is handing him the binoculars. Yep. Who is like questioning to like what happened last night? Because she's feeding into it now, even though she's saying you shouldn't be doing this. And it's also interesting is that like Lisa is like, you need to stop doing this. Like you like everything you're pointing to, she's given him logical explanations for stuff, which in this yeah. case, it's one of those things where like, if you look at each individual piece of evidence, you can probably come up with a way to poke holes in it. It's when you right. start to put everything together is that she starts to like, people start to like believe what he's saying. And then Lisa's at one point where she sees something that is just like, you're right. Like, I think you, I think he might've done something to his wife where she is going to help to start to help the investigation as well because she believes what he's saying now. Yes, I, I was I was calling it kind of like the logical character. Right? So like in the beginning, there's there's LB and his entertainment habit of peeping yep. time, right? And then you had three logical characters. You have Stella, Lisa, and then you've got the detective. Yep. And it seems like as the movie progresses, you start losing these logical characters. You can't seem to find any more holes to poke into. Um, and that's when now you have a case of whether or right. not something happened or didn't. Yeah. And I mean, I'll even give Lars though, is that he does some things to help set up where he can poke holes in the story. So if anybody comes asking for something, like he has the letter that's sent to him from his wife where you're like, oh, and then 
a woman collected baggage from a train station and it's like, well, so-and-so collected it. And I mean, LB brings up a good point. It's like, how do you know it was her? Just because somebody said that that was them. Yeah. Like, and I mean, back then though, it's a different time. It's a different time. You take people more at their word back then. Right. However, it is kind of a commentary on today where we look at information and now we can't trust information from anybody and we have to back <laughs> every rabbit hole of information from every single person it doesn't matter their accreditation anymore because they're we're, we're trying to validate um that was that's an interesting kind of play into today's but i i think i i feel like maybe you mentioned it but i have to talk and so i think maybe we didn't we didn't polish it up as clean as we should when that stream happened that night yep. then the next day we or next night we see lars kind of coming and going um we that whole time we no longer see mrs thorwald right and so the the suspicious nature of lb jeffries is he's wondering where is she so now the story of the you know the train conductor knowing that a woman on the train and the bags and things of that nature now i feel like I, I feel like I, you were going to mention that and i talked over it real fast so I oh no that. you're fine and i mean the other thing too is that she was invalid or she was very sickly so it's yeah. kind of weird that she would have went and visited her sister because it seems like she really couldn't do a whole lot and that's part of where i think their bickering came from is that she's stuck in the house all day and then i mean she's probably just very negative with her plight and she's taking it out on him which you know sucks for him but i mean it is what it is though as well i mean he married her right. and i don't well, we don't know if it happened before or after. We don't know really the right. story. Like it's it's clearly you know um, drawn or uh, it's um, draining on him. Mm -hmm. He's tired and annoyed with it, and spends most of his time in the living room away from her. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So after uh, the next day, you know, the next day you start getting uh, Stella's talking a little bit more, and then you start getting uh, um, Lisa is now fully invested right um and lb is now called because there is a spot where he's looking through the window as lars the next day is cleaning uh like a, a, a jigsaw yeah and um there was a couple other tools that he was cleaning um yes yeah, so but now jeffrey's haters are standing up because he thinks he's on to something so he makes a phone call to the to the detective and I think also around this time is where the dog comes into play because there is the one flower or whatever at the end that it was normal. And then it seemed to be elevated when he took a picture the one night and then the dog keeps digging there. And then yeah. the next day you notice it's down farther. Yeah. That whole, throughout the whole movie, that dog keeps picking around that garden area. And I, Alfred Hitchcock does a good thing. And you said there's a couple things where to Lars's character that you you think he's going to go one way and he actually doesn't which helps you yeah. think that he's an innocent man right so this mm -hmm. whole movie thus far lars will be in the garden area and every time he is the dog after he leaves the dog will kind of mess with what he just did yep. um and the, the lady next door is shooting him saying come on dog you need to leave because he's gonna he's gonna be mad at you right. and then the one interaction that the dog and him have he says he just kind of very politely says get out of here Right. And I don't think he, if maybe just a little pat on the dog behind just sends the dog going and you're thinking, oh no, he's going to, he's going to punt this dog. In the <laughs> right. 
courtyard and that doesn't happen. So now it starts making you think that maybe he is an innocent man just by his characteristics. Right. And I mean, and going along with what you were just saying there about him like seeming to be normal, is it really, at least for me, I didn't start to like, obviously knowing how a movie ends this last viewing, but like for me, I really didn't think that he was necessarily done anything bad until he starts sitting in his living room and smoking his cigarette, like in the dark where all you can see is the ember at the end of it. And I'm like, all right, that dude's a psychopath sitting there like that. Like that's the moment where I'm like, no, no, there's something wrong here. <laughs> well, it's interesting though, because yes, you're right. Nobody smokes in the dark. <laughs> and if you do, then you're just a Billy badass. But um, I, my first time watching this, I can remember this very vividly. I thought the big twist at the end was going to be that when he's smoking in the dark, he's watching the courtyard from his oh. perspective in yeah. Boyer. But that was me at a younger age that really wouldn't have played into the movie. But like, I, you're trying to give this man the benefit of doubt and claim because the claims are that he killed his wife. That's what Jeffries is trying to convince the detective of. And the detective is the logical character. That's the only one left saying no. Right. Uh, all of these reasons are a point to why he did not kill his wife. And yeah, I mean, he's, uh, uh, Lars is kind of a, a, a dick by nature. I mean, nobody smokes in the dark, but that still doesn't prove that he's guilty. Right. Yeah. Yep. So. And then, I mean, I think what gets Lisa actually on board is I think they see him going through his wife's purse and pulls out the wedding ring. And that's where she's like, a woman would never leave her wedding ring behind like that. Female intuition. That's, yeah. that's the term that was used. Female intuition. Uh, Detective Doyle says, I can't tell you how many loose ends that I've tried chasing down because of female intuition and that never come to fruition here. Um, yeah, she sees the handbag that is uh, not taken with, with uh well, they're calling her Emma on IMDb, but Anna, Mrs. Thorwald, yep. um, sees that it's been left behind and no woman would leave their handbag behind, <laughs> let alone their jewelry in there, let alone a wedding ring. Right. But remember, he's a jewelry salesman. So it, actually... could, it could just be an additional set of jewelry that he that he has. That's true. And I mean, I think from here is where they actually start to really ramp up the tension is yes. that once she becomes on board because she's willing to go over there to kind of because they're actually trying to get him to spook him in order for him to make a mistake because i believe they first go over and get like slide a note under the door and then she has to hide so they're already yeah. starting to build that tension of like okay she might get caught here and then they're trying to get him to do things and i think this is where it starts to develop where her idea is I'm going to sneak into his apartment to get that handbag and see if I can find that information. Yeah. You can tell early on, she even mentioned, she's like, I'm going to go in there. And he's like, Oh no, you're not. And like, right. <laughs> he's very protective of these women, even though he physically can't do anything. Yep. It's his drive and desire to know the truth that sparked them in their yeah. able bodies to actually do it. And, you know, that's where his, um, he starts his admiration towards her starts changing. Yep. She starts proving that no, I'm willing to, you know, go into this dude's apartment. I am willing to slide the note under the door. I'm willing to do all of these things. Um, and yeah, that's where the that's obviously we're building towards the climax of the of the story there, right? Right. Dick 
is is Lars guilty of something or is this all just inside the imagination and what happens when you're looking for something right when you're looking for something to be true more times than not you're going to find all the reasons of why it's true and you're going to discard all the reasons of why there it's not true because you're not looking for those things so this is kind of the climax that's that crossroads moment what happens it's a good point you bring up there because this actually also ramps up even more tension is that when he comes back while she's in there and then he yeah. has to call the cops in order to try to save her. And while the cops show up there, this is actually what gets him in trouble is that she's trying to show him that she found the ring. And right. this is where Lars realizes that she's not doing this on her own. There's somebody else involved here and they're watching me right now which I think makes him even more dangerous because now he knows that yes. he's being watched. Now he knows he's being watched and what's he going to do with it? And I love that whole kind of 15 minutes, you know, up yep. until the end. That's the ending. The last 15 minutes really is a nice punch. It packs a good punch. Um, even a little bit before she sneaks into the house when they are trying to get him to leave the house because they want to check the garden, right? They swear something's in the garden because we've jumped over this uh, this detail, but yeah. the dog ends up dead. That's Somebody right. Yep. broke its neck. So now they have more reason. Actually, the dog dying is the reason that brought them back into thinking, thinking that he because the detective had done such a good job of telling them that he was innocent. Right. Um, it's not until that happens where it now kickstarts us into inciting incident number two and gets us into the act three, which then forces them to have to go into the apartment. But that's kind of when I started thinking Lars was guilty. Right. Actually. To the phone call. Right. Now that I'm actually thinking about it, I completely forgot that she actually went down there to check the garden. And then when they didn't find anything, she's like, well, heck, I'm already down here. He's gone. I'm going to go check his apartment. And that's yeah. what kind of escalates that. And there's actually an interesting thing with going on from there as well. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, I, I still, even though he reacted poorly to the phone call, there's still not proof that he's guilty, right? Yeah. He leaves because the phone call was from LB talking to him, which is interesting in its own right. It's kind of like Pacino and yeah. <laughs> uh, De Niro finally having a conversation for the first yeah. time. And you're thinking, oh, shoot, what are they going to say? And he says to him, meet me at the hotel because they're trying to get him to leave. Right. Um, what did you do with her? And now that he's entertaining that, it makes you say, okay, he must have done something with her. I still was waiting for a twist to come. I still didn't necessarily think she was dead or, you know, you know, been killed by him. Right. Um, and even when she he gets back to the apartment and, and Grace Kelly's character is in there. Well, shit, she broke into his house. He's got a right to throw her around. Right. I mean, she's guilty here. <laughs> he's kidnapping. She's got his her, the wedding ring on. She's got all the other jewelry. You know, he, he's ready to throw her around the house. She's a burglar. She's a kidnapper. So, yeah, the only other thing I was going to say is that actually helps to ramp up tension here is I forgot is that while she's in there, Miss Lonely Hearts decides that she is going to kill herself and LB doing the right thing calls the police. But while doing that, he's tied up on the phone and 
is not paying attention to what's happening up in the other apartment, which, I mean, Hitchcock just being so good at building suspense makes me, even knowing what's going to happen, still tense where I'm worried about everything, and I've seen this before. Yes, and the reason, yes, because you care about Miss Lonely Hearts. We're all a bit of Miss Lonely Hearts until yeah. we're not, right? Yeah. And, and she's getting ready to kill herself. She's got all these pills on the nightstand. Uh, Stella uh, acknowledges that she's going to do this, but doesn't actually think she's got the credit. As a matter of fact, she stops at one point and has dinner before she actually does it. They yeah. think she's not going to, so which takes us off of it for a second. Then we realize that she's going to, and Stella goes, oh my God, LB, call the cops. And at that moment, that's when Lars is on his way back to the apartment where Grace Kelly's in there farting around and... <laughs> communicate with it so he's got to communicate to the cops in order to save her life yep. but dude, when it was first happening i thought they were i i thought they were so obsessed with trying to figure out what happened to save uh anna uh thorwald that they were actually participating in killing miss lonelyheart um, because i didn't think they were going to come back to her i thought they were realize the error of their ways yeah and that nothing actually happened with Lars and his wife, okay. but they actually caused, and I thought that would have been an interesting twist on what happens when you are looking for something and it's not really there. Right. Think about that. Imagine that alternative ending where there is a logical explanation for everything Lars did, and yet they were peeping in on somebody getting ready to commit suicide, and she does, and they miss it. That's a dark way to go, but I mean, it's not a bad, like, kind of alternative like you said where you're kind of like we could have done something but we were so wrapped up in this we yes and i almost think it's funny i didn't realize there was like 50 iterations of this movie since it came out that somebody maybe they have i don't know i had i don't seen, know but yeah yeah so, so there's the big climax yes and then this is where um, Grace Kelly's character of Lisa gets taken away to jail, which, I mean, you know, makes sense. But it also is a good thing for her because that gets her away from everything. So she doesn't necessarily have to worry about, you know, being attacked. But because Lars now knows that somebody's watching him and has an idea of where to go, because I actually think that the light was on or something along those lines where he's trying to hide that he was watching. And this yes. is what brings Lars up to his apartment. Yes, and then there's the whole moment where Stella has been given the money to go bail out. Oh, yeah, that's right. Um, and I will admit that whole process happens really fast. Yeah. Right? Like, from the moment that Grace Kelly's character gets arrested and is taken into the precinct and Stella leaves the apartment, I mean, we're talking, all Lars had to do was walk down some steps, go across the courtyard, right some steps to come back to the second floor and in all that time somehow the bail was made the <laughs> cop um but it doesn't matter you 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 suspend your disbelief there or your belief for a second there because he's coming right. now you got Stuart lb jeffrey sitting there with his leg in a cast his whole body in a cast and he can hear that this fat uh christopher lloyd character is <laughs> and he turns the lights off they already were actually he doesn't turn any lights on he grabs his old school picture yeah uh, the, uh, the flash bulbs 
the flash bulb and he grabs his extra bulb. So you new listeners, you might not know this, but the old way of taking pictures was you had to replace a light bulb literally one after one flash every time. Can you imagine how expensive that would be? That It's insane that it's only one per like picture. Like that yeah. is just crazy that it like burns it out and has to be like replaced every single time. It makes sense why yeah. it's a box of them though. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he comes to the door, man, set it up. Yep, so he does, Um, this is actually even a great way to build tension here is because you hear the door to his apartment building open, like the outer door, and then you slowly hear as he gets closer and closer, comes into the apartment and they don't know each, like, well, I mean, JB knows who he is, but I don't think Lars necessarily knows anything about this guy. Right, he does. And pretty much is just like, questioning you know, why he's watching him and slowly starts making his way over towards this man in a wheelchair and he starts using his flash bulbs to try to blind him which i actually think is a really good effect to have this like the red like circle that would come from it as you yeah. would think when you get something like you look into like a blinding light where it kind of disorients you and that is what his only kind of option of survival is right now is to try to slow him up as long as he can just long enough so that hopefully Lisa comes back, but here's the problem, right? I'm missing where, why the cops, well, no, they solved the case, right? They had the wedding ring, they solved the case, right? They know that he's the killer. I mean, I'm, gonna, I'm not gonna lie. The ending here for me, it's very cool aesthetically. Yes. He said, I love watching him take the pictures um, in like the red circle dilation of the eyes. Yep. It's not a perfect thing. Because all that dude has to do is just cover his eyes. I mean, I, I get that he's in the dark, so maybe yeah. not. Like, why did all the cops come back? They had enough time to dust the thing for fingerprints and find out that. I mean, how does the ring solve the murder? I don't. This is my only real issue as well with some Hitchcock films is that I think the ending is too. Cause that's actually what I have in my notes is that it's too rushed, like you said. And I no. think a lot of times they do just like an info dump to kind yeah. of explain why you get there instead of actually giving us the ending that would actually make sense. Like there should have been some reason that this kind of all wraps itself up. Right. Like to me, they both maybe should have been taken in, even though it was his house, he put his hands on her, whatnot, blah, blah, blah. You could, you could make that work something like there just need right. to be a little we're flushing out of the details to make it make more sense to buy a little more time. Um, I I think what happened was he was so stuck on the ending and how it was going to look aesthetically and, and yeah. it was cool. It was very cool. It reminds me of Saw with the you know the camera. Yeah. Trying to forget what Saw that was one two three. I, I think remember. it's the first. Because yeah, we're uh, yeah the the photographer and he gets attacked when he's not sure what's in his apartment. It's very cool as you're trying to not what's in there by getting the flash um it just was rushed right yeah now nonetheless as lars is coming in and he finally does make his way over to good old lb Jeffries. he's beating the crap out of him he's trying to tumble him over the second floor about uh, there just fall to his his death right yep and, and not only that, time, but he also breaks lb's leg again and puts him even more in his. So not only is the ending rushed, it's literally rushed. 
they speed up the camera frames. That's right. In order to get the police officers from the courtyard from Lars's building down the steps to the other side, you can see the frames that are in like hyper mode. Yep. It, it, it's, I'm, I'm getting it, it was 1957, right? Yeah, something along those lines. Yeah, it's de- mid 50s. Yes, mid 50s. If it was remade today, unfortunately, you don't have James Stewart. You might have like a George Clooney. And no. I, I was going to ask you if we were to remake this today, uh-huh. who, would, who would roll? I, I think Clooney could be a good one. Actually, interesting enough, in like, I think 97, they made a remake with um, Christopher Reeves after he was paralyzed. Yeah, and he was paralyzed. Yeah. yeah. So, like, uh, that was. Uh, and I mean, Disturbia is pretty much a version of yep. this where you have somebody on house arrest. But yeah, if you're going to do like an older guy, like Clooney would be interesting. Clooney, because he's charming like Stuart. Yeah. He's got cadence like Stuart, right? I, I, I don't know who would go, who, who would you put into the role of uh, Grace Kelly, Suprema? I, I know who I'd go. I'd go with Margot Robbie. Yeah, that'd be a good one. Um, she might be a little bit old now. I would have said Naomi Watts would have been one that I could see there. She has like a yeah. natural beauty, but she's not as Margo's beautiful got- as like a Grace Kelly. Margot. Yeah, that's a good you know, one. Like old school. Yeah. yeah. That uh, Just like a throwback to me. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of, Margot Robbie feels like a, an A-list actress from that time, right? Who's, yeah. And they, I'm getting a lot of that from the uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood where she plays that. Right. Uh, but I mean, that's why you cast her in that role, though. Yeah, because she fits it so well. Um, who plays Stella? I mean, if you want to go over the top, you could get Melissa McCarthy. <laughs> it's so funny you said that. We'll, we'll come back to that. I would say Frances McDormand would be a good one. Okay. Um, um, but yeah, and maybe she's too big a star now. I don't know. Maybe you need yeah. to kind of turn on a little bit. Um, maybe uh, that 70s show, uh, The Mom. Uh, oh, she um, would be good. I can't think of what her. I can't think of what Kitty's name is like as an actress, but Deborah Rupp, maybe something. Uh, uh, yeah, I think you might be right. Deborah Joe Rupp or something like that. Yep. Uh, Melissa McCarthy. That's so funny you said that. I, I imagine this movie today should be remade as a rated R comedy. It's like a rated R comedy with like all the big characters, you know, yeah. like the Rogan type things. Like, I think it would be hilarious to see how they pull off the suspense with like just over the top comedy at the same <laughs> time. I think it'd be great. I so. mean, it'd be actually really funny to see some of the bit players like Miss Lonely Hearts or like the songwriter yeah. being played by somebody super famous. Like, have Dave Franco be the like songwriter who's just so frustrated up there that he can't like do anything. <laughs> Dave Franco playing the disaster artist upstairs in that little apartment. Yeah. Get like uh actually I was thinking for like before we went on the comedy shtick, I don't know if he acts anymore. Tim Robbins would be an interesting Lars. Love, love Tim Robbins. Just because, I mean, he would bring such a weird kind of take to the role. And, I mean, I think it's also because I'm so used to seeing him in, like, pants with, like, the suspenders. And that's what Lars is wearing. So, maybe it's just that the outfit would just be – he could still wear it. Lars reminded me of Mr. Winkler. Yeah. Raymond Burr does look like Mr. Winkler. 
He had a weird kind of shape to his body, almost like ourselves. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. So the ending happens. They he does fall. So the now he's in a wheelchair again, but now he's got two legs and a body cast. Um, Miss Lonely Hearts is now with the songwriter. Yep. Her um, his song so, saved her. That was the part where I was talking about earlier, where I took Miss Lonely Hearts as older. Yeah. And songwriter. Not that they can't be together, but like it, it yeah. just felt. So and then go ahead and give the big reveal on Miss Torso. It's hilarious is this little short guy comes back from, I'm assuming either the war or just came back from military service and he's shorter than she is. He's a little <laughs> bit like heavy in the midsection and she's so happy to see him. But I just love that because that's literally, I mean, James Stewart's a good looking guy, but I mean, that's him with Grace Kelly. And I just love that. It's like, that's who she's meant to be with is yeah. that. Yeah. So my question to you is, is Miss Torso villain? Uh. <laughs> the socialite, she's kissing on all these guys by her boys off to war or whatever, military service. I mean, as long as she's, you know, I guess just entertaining them in a, I guess <laughs> how far is too far? <laughs> hey, yeah. You're getting ready to get married, buddy. Let's see how your fiance, if she was to do that, how far I know in my case, I would not even be able to have anybody over like that. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'd be sitting at home alone. Yeah. And it's funny that the newlyweds are fighting. That's true. Gabe, I think, I, I 100% think you're, I'm going to, it's got to be a thing. It's got to be a thing. All of those people. I wish at the end he woke up. Because that's one thing I didn't get from this movie. Yeah. It was too... The whole movie is painting a picture. Because hey, I think I think Alfred kind of did something dangerous here. Okay? Mm -hmm. If we're looking at real life, right? Yeah. The movie didn't have a twist ending, which a lot of his stuff does. Right. Right? It could have went a couple different ways. Mm -hmm. um, sure, he could have figured it out. He's great at that. But it doesn't. So now it validates looking in in voyeurism. It validates it. And says, "Hey, look, I might be saving a murder here." And it, I yeah. wonder, in the late 1950s, how many people, like, I wonder how the, how many arrests went up of peeping toms because of this movie. Because that, that happens all the time, right? Yeah. Art imitates life, and life imitates art all the time. I remember when. Um, Oh, what was the movies, the, the trilogy that, um, oh my gosh, uh, the, it was like a teenage, it wasn't Twilight, it was, she's a great actress now, she was in uh, Silver Lightning's Playbook. Oh, uh, The Hunger Games? Hunger Games. Yep. So I remember when The Hunger Games came out, bow and arrow sales went up like 200%, right? Oh, I remember that, because yeah. Of the use of bow and arrow. So I just, I would love to look at, do a study on Peeping Tom arrest in like night, late 1950s just to see because of the validation of this movie. But I mean, one thing to think about is the fifties were also like McCarthyism where people were accusing people of being, um, you know, communists. So like, yeah. I wouldn't even be shocked if that's partly why he's like, let's make this movie is because we already have people accusing their neighbors of doing things. Why do you think he makes the, makes it hold up at the end instead of gives us a twist? Is that the I, only way it would work? Did you, would, would James Stewart become a villain, or not a villain, but would he become lesser than, 
When you're supposed to fall more in love with him, would he become lesser than if he's wrong? I think that's what it is. I think that the whole movie, everybody's telling him he's wrong, and they slowly come around to him being right. So I think if you have a twist where he's actually wrong, I think it's kind of like, I mean, I guess it's status quo for like the happy ending where you have to have the villain be punished. But if you have it where it's like, yeah, he is actually crazy, then it's like, well, what was the point of everything that I guess we kind of did here? I think the point would have been to sell the idea that you can, I, I kind of like those vague, sometimes I do, like the, there's a bigger lesson to be learned here because I, I know a lot of people that uh, they look for, you know, all the wrong things, even though yeah. they're not there, they're looking for them and they sabotage their own life because they're looking for things so profusely, you know, so. I would say if this movie originally would have been made in like, the 90s or like something else i think you could the 90s was kind of tough actually because that's where you had a lot of like the kind of darker thrillers where you had serial killers and everything like that and you couldn't trust people maybe i'm more like the 2000s where you would have like you think that this guy is going to be turned out to be right but that's where they're more of like the twist where it's going to be like actually this whole time he's wrong about this whole thing and he has been accusing somebody of something they didn't do right Yep. Yep. Totally agree, man. Because I was, I, I got to admit that like, it just felt to me like the first time I was watching this, maybe more so the second when I forgot what happened in the first time, because there was some yeah. time that it passed. Right. I was thinking to myself, oh yeah, there must be a twist coming because Hitchcock wouldn't just leave us down this road and have it be so obvious. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it could have been, uh, he killed her because he had to or something, you know, they could, because I just kept thinking to myself, Lars is too unlikable. He's mm -hmm. clearly they want us to believe he's done it. Right. So where is the the you know? And most of the time we get that, but it just didn't happen. And, I, and it was fine. It didn't take away from the movie. It, no, maybe it yeah. would have. I I, I I thoroughly enjoy this film. I will watch it again and again and again because there's so many little nuances in the right. film. There's the comedy part of just the way Stewart delivers his banter with anybody he's talking to. He is great. Uh, Kelly, which she's a phenomenal actress that demands attention on the screen. Every time she kind of Shawn Michaels her ways into frame, <laughs> you know, she's just she's just hard to not look at and hear and listen to. And then Stella is just like a force of impact. So like I agree okay. that Stella, the detective in my eyes is almost fifth billing because you're more intrigued by Lars and what yep. he's doing than you really are by the detective. That's so, I agree. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree though, man. I would like, if somebody was going to remake this again, which I mean, they've remade it in different ways, I would say, but like, I would actually like to see one where they tweak the ending and kind of do their own thing. Cause I mean, for me, I think some of the best remakes are when you take the general idea of something, but you do your own thing with it and make yeah. it your own. And I would just like to see the same idea because New York changes, but it always stays the same. The courtyards are still there, right? Yeah. The old time project buildings are still there, but with modern characters. Yeah. Like, who's the I? To me, the Miss Lonely Hearts today is the social media person that validates herself through likes and whatnot yeah. that doesn't leave the house. Like this, to me, that's the like because that's one thing we didn't talk about with Miss Lonely Hearts is that. And that's why I thought she was a widow because not only would she, she got dialed or dialed up, but she wouldn't leave the house. Right. 
And when she finally did, you could see there was terror on her face to make that. But she's also very brave. And then she does get a guy to come back to the house. And they make the, be. Yeah. the comment about, oh, he's a little young for her mm-hmm. to tell her she's older. So the songwriter, to me, feels more younger where she feels more older. I agree. I, I, I don't know, but it, there's little holes, but it doesn't matter. I, I, I think that you could modernize today, and i just like to see how they would do it. I think so, too. I mean, and I mean, you could even, I mean, like I said, like Disturbia. I think it's an interesting thing to have somebody on house arrest. And yeah. I mean, you could even go back to the person having a broken leg. Like, that doesn't even bother me. Like, you can use that idea to remake it. But I mean, like, actually, like, Jamie and I just rewatched, like, we watched um, for a podcast, like, The Stepfather. And then we watched, like, the remake that came out. And she brought up a good idea about how, like, what the remake does so well is that how times have changed from 1987 to 2009. And with technology changing, I think this is an interesting movie where, like, our cell phones now are so powerful that you could do some stuff with somebody trapped in their apartment thinking that their neighbor potentially killed somebody where your phone could zoom in without needing to have the lens and everything like that. And you could play with so many different things. Yeah. I, it, I just get the creative juices rolling. Not that we'll ever write it <laughs> and tried to, who knows, another life, maybe, maybe when I've got more disciplines or whatever, I, I, I found, I found some love with this podcast and I think I'm going to run with that for a while. Um, I, I really am impressed by Kenny right now. Um, yeah. I, he, they made a movie, man. He drove to Columbus to make a movie, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 I really am inspired by what he's doing, what you're doing, what, um, you know, it doesn't, it, whether or not we got people that are big, which he has got a lot of subscribers now and he's doing his thing, or you've just been doing it so long and you have your solid foundation. You know, I remember like thinking like, Dave, when are you, when you going to quit on this thing? And you're not because you love it. And I didn't realize that until I started doing it. Right. And I'm like, man, I'll do this the rest of my life. Like, I love this. Right. You know, I had my last show. Let's see where we're at. I just had uh some guys on, we hit my analytics here for this episode. My, I, I like to hit a hundred views on YouTube. Yeah. And I'm at 98. And hey, so, right. but that's a successful show. I just put it out a day and a half ago. Right. Yeah. So like that's a successful show. Not every show does that, but it doesn't matter to me because every show I've learned that there's something that somebody can take on, from it. Yeah. Took, yeah, so like our show. It's one of the, so we only have like 50 some viewers on our show, right? But we also had 30 on Spotify. So we got about 80, but our show was one of the most retained listening shows of any of them that I've done. Oh, it's interesting, right? Yeah. That, that people take away different things from every show. So long winded answer saying, or long winded way of saying that, like, I love what all you guys are doing. Um, and it inspires me every day to keep doing more because I'm going to do this for the rest of my life. So I know what you mean. Like definitely when I finally figured out what my shtick was going to be for like a majority of the podcast for the year, I'm already thinking of what I'm going to do for the little like uh, alliterations and everything for the, for each different year. And then I'm even thinking like, well, heck, once I get back to like um, into 2030, for if I'm still, you know, doing everything that like I can go back to zero again and pick up from where I left off. So like completely yeah. understand where you're going, like keep looking for stuff like, but I do want you to go ahead and, um, you know, pimp your wares and everything and just 
let you know, like let everybody out there know about like what you're doing and everything. So, yeah, I appreciate that. Uh, my name is Robert Gifford and I host a uh, YouTube podcast show that you can find on all platforms, Spotify, Google, Apple podcast. Um, but the, my main driver right now is YouTube. Um, my premise of the show is I sit down with interesting people doing interesting things. And I also have a sub show off of that where I have called conversation with friends. Um, it's, they're all a part of the same umbrella, which is Bobby talk, dot, dot, dot. Those dots are there to tell you that there's always more to the story. Um, and a funny reason why that show is called Bobby talks, dot, dot, dot. So that dot, 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 which will, he thinks I'm an idiot. Will, my buddy, our, our buddy says, uh, Robert, you know, that's an ellipsis, right? I was like, yes, it's an ellipsis, but nobody wants to hear a show called Bobby talks ellipsis. I, um, I didn't even fall in love with the Bobby talks dot, dot, dot until about episode four or five, because it goes so well with the, with the setup, like Bobby talks, dot, dot, dot. There's always more to the story type thing. Right. Um, I had sat on doing Bobby talks, the podcast and giving it that name for so long because I had all these other ideas for what I was going to name it. Yeah. And it wasn't until the day I decided, I was like, you know what, I'm going to go forward. Um, the George Floyd murders just took place. I really wanted to kind of have a footprint where I could show students. Uh, I could show the community. I could bring in my friendships with people mm -hmm. that are diverse of all races and say, look, we can, white man can sit at the table with black man and vice versa, and we can have a conversation. Yeah. Uh, but anyways, I, it was time to go. I needed to do this. So I did one last Google search of Bobby Talks podcast just to make sure that nobody had it. Yep. And literally literally eight hours previously to that google search was a guy who started his podcast called bobby talks and i could not use bobby talks anymore because now his digital footprint was there and if ever we both got big or whatever yeah. i would have to change my brand because of it and the truth be told i might have to change it with what i did anyways but i thought to myself you know what if i get to that point then at least I would have enough people know who I am that I would I would be able to have them follow. Yeah. So I decided to go with Bobby Talks dot dot dot, <laughs> and that was more of the story. And yeah, so that's my show. You guys can find us. I do right now. I'm doing one show a week on YouTube. Um, every Tuesday it comes out, it drops. But I am now currently uh, in summer break, and I am looking to do some more interesting things on Twitch, go live, and do a couple shows a week from here on out. So. Nice. Perfect. And I'll also put in the show notes and everything links to all your stuff and everything. So it would make it easier to get people to come over there. And it's actually funny. The thing you were talking about with Will and talking about like the name of the show, I literally had the same conversation with Jamie where I was like, I want, I hope he knows it's an ellipsis. So I'm glad that you did. Like, not that I didn't think you did, but I was like, I just hope he knows what it is. But once I heard your like promo for it type thing, I was like, okay, I, it makes complete sense. And like, in the grand scheme of things, it does sound horrible to try to be Bobby Talks Ellipses, where Bobby Talk Three Dots makes, it flows and it gives you like a nice little brand. Let me put it this way. <laughs> I absolutely hate when I first sat down, I was like, I can't call the show Bobby Talks dot, dot, dot. I just can't do it. It sounds stupid. It does. It sounds, I agree. I know it sounds stupid, but I'm so, when you know as well as I know, dude, that when you get your mind set on something, 
it is so hard to change it. it so, give me an example. I'm actually, spoiler alert, I'm actually getting ready to start my own media company called Three Dots Media. Um, and I am eventually going to be looking at doing a podcast network and bringing in some other people, spoiler alert, um, bringing in some things and doing a network, but I want to make sure that I kind of do it right before we get there. Yeah, but under this umbrella, yeah, I've got something called Three Dots Media now that I'm starting to get more comfortable with the Three Dots because of that slogan, there's always more to the story. And yes, I know it's an ellipsis. No, okay. I mean, at least you had the same <laughs> thought that we both did. And <laughs> so like... <laughs> yeah, I'm a little more educated than I was in high school. And I know we still have of us in high school. See, in all of our heads, none of us have progressed since 18, no. right? Yeah. <laughs> Nope. <laughs> Fair enough. But I appreciate I, you getting the platform to uh, to give that a little bit of a blow. I appreciate you guys. Yeah, not a problem. Um, is there anything else you wanted to say before we kind of close everything out here? No, nah, man. I, uh, I I I know you guys do a little bit more. I, I, let me ask you this real quick before we go. Is Real Window? Uh, it's suspense for sure. Uh, you do. I know you're kind of coming outside the box a little bit from the horror genre a little bit. Does this fit in the horror genre? I actually was like grappling with it when I was watching it and at the end of it, it's not a horror movie. I would say that I still did a review of it just because there's dark enough elements. So like, I will have like a written review on my blog at some point for it that I have, like I've got like archives. So I'm kind of like trying to get through some other ones first. It's not horror. I would definitely say it's very close to being horror adjacent just because of kind of the subject matter. And I mean, Hitchcock with a lot of these thrillers kind of dips his toe into like horror he really only did like technically i think like three or four horror films total i think it has enough genre-ness to it that i would kind of put it close to that so it's psycho horror yeah it is yeah interesting interesting because that yeah, one's would... one of the first like proto slashers yeah yeah I, it, if you remove the slashing scene though and he, she dies a different way, which I know you can't. It's it's the whole movie, right? Yeah. But if you just take it out there where, like, he has, like, poisoned her or something along those lines. Does that one scene just make it horror, and now it's not horror no more. It's just suspense, right? Most likely, yeah. I mean, I know there's the this private detective that gets attacked later in the movie is another kind of, like, slash. I almost think the reveal at the end and seeing the skeleton, that's really fucking creepy, too. Oh, yeah. And, you know, I, I just I, the only reason I say this because I've had a conversation before is I don't think Alfred Hitchcock would have ever went down the horror route um, as we know it. Like, no, I, I, I no, Yeah, I agree. We would have went down more of the suspense route, more of those types of things. But I, I think, yeah, because I think he was too serious. This is I, I'm not trying to insult your craft uh, or your <laughs> genre. Um, I think he was too serious of a filmmaker uh, where at times your genre is so polluted with bad filmmaking by design sometimes I get it I, I'm not I'm not I'm not but that's why I've always I've always really been drawn to the horror genre when it's done in my eyes really well yeah. I'm like because those pieces of art stand out amongst everything even it, to me you know like like saw the storytelling in saw one mm -hmm. stands out to me now the acting was bad but like but it doesn't matter. The point is, is that the story was there. It was done well enough yeah. that like that comes out to me as much as anything. Titanic, you throw it up there. I'll remember that movie for the rest of my life. Yeah. Um, 
I'm also not the uh, the the audience. I get that. Too, so. That's fair. Yeah. But I appreciate you being having me on the show, man. I do. No, I'm glad you definitely came on. I think we had a good. Uh, I think we had a nice, fun kind of conversation here with this movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Guys, go check it out if you haven't seen it. It was uh, 1957. It's probably the only rear window iteration that you want to watch. Probably. Yeah. All righty. Well, then, this is David Garrett Jr., and I am signing off. It had been a wonderful evening, and what I needed now to give it the perfect ending.